It's Monday and you're locked into Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you. Sarah Hoyle is editorial producer of this show, and you're going to meet our new technical producer in just a minute. Uh, his show number one, no pressure, already nailing it. Doing an amazing job as uh, we prepare for another busy week. A lot to talk about. Of course, you've been paying attention to the news cycle over the weekend. Uh, you know that there have been developments in Ukraine and surrounding nations. We've got uh, great insight and analysis Coming up from Dr. Aaron Ehrlich, who's going to join us from McGill University. He's going to talk in particular about disinformation campaigns coming out of Russia and what it's doing for international news coverage. I'm looking forward to that. Plus, the creator of Little Mosque on the Prairie. You know that. I mean, that is a piece of Canadiana. That show that, of course, ran for a number of years, uh, Zarka. Nawaz is going to join us to talk about a number of things, including a new web series she's got out. She's got a book just about to drop, and her piece in the Globe and Mail uh, that was published March 4th, just a few days ago, the Freedom Convoy and now Putin are making Muslims look good. We're going to find out exactly why. The piece is fantastic. If you subscribe to the Globe, I encourage you to read it. If you don't subscribe to the Globe, I encourage you to subscribe to the Globe. We've got you covered here. Positive Reflections, too, coming a little later on in the show, a submission from Emily that's amazing. She shared a poem with us that I've not yet seen, and it moved me, and I bet it'll have the same impact on you. Something tells me. So all of this, plus a few of your emails, we'll get to as many as we can. Let's get this thing kick-started. You know the show happens because we have the support of amazing sponsors like Bitcoin Well. This is going to be, I mean, if you're a market watcher, commodities, currencies and the like a wild next number of weeks or months everybody's talking about it keeping an eye on the impact of sanctions and what it's doing for the world so we've got of course a resource here the team at bitcoin well does a great job of, of helping me feel like my questions aren't stupid ones the best part about bitcoin well is that you can reach out to them online or you can hit them up in person if you go to the Sponsors tab on our website, you'll find them right there at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. As mentioned, uh, Dr. Aaron Ehrlich coming up in just a few minutes from McGill University. We'll talk about disinformation campaigns in Russia. Want to let you know as well, of course, it's International Women's Day tomorrow, and uh, Sarah Hoyles has been working on putting a great show together. That's coming up tomorrow. You won't want to miss it on March 8th. Now, you know if you were watching or if you downloaded our podcast on Friday, we said goodbye to Samuel Brooks, who did just an unbelievable job as the founding technical producer of this show. Um, Sam's moving on, taking on other challenges in his life, and we're so excited, and we wish him the very best. It gives us an opportunity to introduce a new team member, and I don't want to waste any time. I want to uh, uh, you know, get this journey started so you you can start to get to know him like I have over the last 10 years or so. What a pleasure to welcome to the show, John Hicks, Real Talk's new technical producer. It's good to have you on board. Well, hello there, Ryan. Yeah. I am. I'm absolutely stoked. As, as people probably know, you know, we ha we work together with the Oilers and uh, it's just great to, to have a job where like I love and respect the person I'm working with. It's been a long time coming. You know, we've both been in broadcasting. <laughs> long you get time. The ups and downs. So I'm, I'm stoked. I love the community and, and the amazing content you've created. 
Well, the, so. the cool part about, I mean, there's a lot of cool parts about this, and, and we can't sort of uh, force knowledge about you on to they're just going to have, you're just going to have to invest time. It's like a new friendship, and, and you'll get to know John or Johnny or Infamous as he's been, people are going to go, wait a second, that's Johnny Infamous? That's the that's the Oilers DJ? You were the Oilers DJ pretty much the entire time that Seven I was their seasons. in-game host. Yeah, so you incredible. and I worked together, had a great yeah. run together, worked a lot of games together. Yeah. Uh, we, we did it live in front of 18,000 people, and, and now we'll do it digitally in front of 18,000 people. So uh, looking forward to having you on board. Uh, we're thrilled that that you and your amazing wife actually made a real commitment to this show. You, you moved back from British Columbia to come work for us, which we were excited yeah. about. So 36 hours after we talked on the phone, yeah. I was here in an Airbnb with all our stuff uh, in a U-Haul storage unit. So I'm ready to get going. Just, you know, take it slow. Yeah, take it I, slow, should, okay? I should have had you. Uh, <laughs> I should have actually had you load up the, the photo that you sent me that you tweeted or that you texted to me. I kept it kind of private out of the gates. But, but John sends me this photo and your hands were like beaten and bloody. Yeah. You'd been like, I don't know if you were like just what, like loading up a trailer and you weren't wearing gloves or something. But you said, these are the hands. <laughs> Of a person who loaded up his condo and drove to Alberta in 36 hours, you said, when real talk calls, you answer. It was, my wife was kind of anxious. She was stressed. Uh, so I let her kind of relax. I moved an entire two-bedroom condo by myself in 36 hours. Well, less than that, about yeah. about 20 hours. So so yeah. um, I know that you're you're like running, you've, you've got a lot. Uh, and Sam's just uh, done an incredible job over the last two weeks. Uh, and in particular, the last week, getting you up to speed and trained up. But it is like sitting in an airplane cockpit where you are. So we'll, we'll try not to like throw too much at you on day one. I don't know if you're watching the live chat or not, but it's nothing but love right now. Everybody's saying awesome. welcome. And some people are insisting, uh, like, for example, they're, they're saying, uh, we're going to call you Johnny. Some people <laughs> say, we want to call you. Like Kelly Joe says, I'm calling him Johnny. I, I you, guess, you've been wrestling back and forth with this. Yeah, I, I guess I've got to change this font. But, you know, Johnny, producer Johnny, infamous. Uh, my wife calls me John when I'm in trouble. When so you're in I, trouble. It's not normally my uh, tagline. <laughs> okay, that so. sounds good. Um, <laughs> people are already looking to to sort of drag you into very divisive type conversations. Oh, no. Uh, for example, Keith wants to know what's your view on raisins and cinnamon buns. <laughs> Jillian wants to know you, you need to clarify your position on pineapple on pizza. It kind of comes with the territory. And, and, and Sam and Sarah, they figured this out. You may want to be part of the team and just kind of blend in and not cause any waves or ripples. That's just not really how we roll here on the show. I realize. Just for the first little bit, I think I'll take a back seat and just kind of watch how you well, roll. Well, I could. Then... I could. I want to just throw some. I want to just throw some some tofu in front of the audience right now <laughs> to let them know that if they're looking for divisive, you're not afraid. You, you have you you have a plant based diet. I do. Yeah, which, me which and my means, wife five uh, years now. Yeah, so. which means that that uh, as does Sarah Hoyles, which means that I am now in the as as a corn. Carnivore, yeah. I am now in the minority. <laughs> uh, but the good news is probably that I think I eat enough prime rib and red meat for the three of us. Yeah. Well, the options today uh, for vegans, vegetarians, they're so vast. Like we've got, we've got the fake burgers, the fake hot dogs, everything. But don't think that I don't smell. A steak on the barbecue in the summer. Do you and still don't miss it? Absolutely. Sell. Of course, I well, eat no, meat but you can't, for my but entire you, life. Yeah, but you can't say of course because I've talked to some of my my brothers gone veg. My brother's virtually gone vegan, mm. but but vegetarian. He he, he would insist because uh, he'll bend the rules a little bit here yeah. and there. Um, but but you talk to some folks, and after a while, it's like they'll say the smell of meat or the the sight of meat actually turns their stomach. Not so, for me. I not mean, for you. And I uh, I keep God thinking about you, raw sashimi, and there's so many things I miss, but. Uh, 
you know, I'm on this journey with my wife together. And she's smart the man, boss, so. smart man. You don't want to be called John too much, right? So pe- people are chiming in saying, Johnny, you do you, plant-based over here. Uh, Jill says she's got my back. So Jill will be with us probably at the first ever Real Talk Tailgate Barbecue. Jill nice. and I will be, we'll be cutting it off. Like, I don't know if you've ever been, have you ever been to Paraguay? They've got, I have. You Did you have the opportunity, you know, they do like their outdoor, the wood burning. Of course. Uh, and they just, they, they cut off the meat as it cooks and you just sit there and you socialize it's incredible and you drink beers and you just saw pieces off as you talk so this is another thing that me and my wife kind of have an argument about the few times that i have meat in the uh, eaten meat in the last five don't years don't forget when you're talking to take your camera john it's been uh when we're uh Exploring the world, vacation. We went to Cuba. There was there was a goat there. I had to try it. I'd never had goat. We went to Jamaica. You think I'm not gonna have a piece of jerk chicken on the beach? It's already dead. It's already. She's probably listening right now to my first show and just irking. But other than that, it's been about three years. So uh, yeah. Awesome, brother. Well, we're we're so excited to have you here. Thank you. Um, you will put your own stamp on this show. I have no doubt. Um, obviously, a, a skilled operator, and and one of the things that's that's kind of this is you were saying um, just for the benefit of the audience as they get to know you a little bit here. You're 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 typically the face of a show. I am. Um, this I, is kind of your first time, maybe quasi. You're not really behind the scenes, but a little bit behind the scenes. I mean, I am behind the scenes, but if anyone knows, like. Uh, shout out to Sam. I know he's listening right now. An incredible uh, technical engineer wizard. This thing right here, I would rather talk less and just focus on the, yeah, well, like you said, the airplane hangar. I'm okay, so at. number one, you've got Dr. Ehrlich, who's probably waiting to check in from McGill. So I will leave, I will leave you alone while you get that interview set up. Thank and you, sir. R- Real talkers, I want to let you know, again, we, we are going to get to a lot of your emails today, or, or at least this week, let me say a lot of them, because i got a stack. But like Christy and, and Philippe and Jill all wrote in about masking and mask bylaws and those being lifted, restrictions being lifted. Um, I shared some of my personal thoughts off the cuff last week, and and I know that it rubbed some people the wrong way because I heard from you. I said, I said listen, at some, and you, it's better if you listen to my whole thing. I was talking about my involvement raising funds for cystic fibrosis and, and how difficult it's been to, to see, especially young kids, uh, just constantly fighting in their immunocompromised situation. And then on the flip side, You've got the bigger conversation, which doesn't mean tomorrow and it doesn't mean next week. But at some point, you say at some point, like that might be five years from now. But at some point, people are going to stop wearing masks on mass. And when is that? And and how do you determine that? And we asked that question and many of you responded. We want to honor your efforts in getting in touch with us with emails. So we're going to get to those. Plus an email from Lisa on my conversation with city councilor Michael Jans and activist Bashir Muhammad about uh, the Edmonton police apparently keeping a list. Uh, the police say we don't have a list. There is no list. Then an interesting one from Kathy about my interview with Captain Kobe last week. So these are some of the emails we've got locked and loaded. Before we get to our first conversation, let me remind you that our friends at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge have bar none the best selection of Jeeps and Rams and the rest of the Dodge lineup in the province of Alberta. That's 1941, the first year that Jeep launched. And, of course, Canadian families have trusted that brand nonstop since. Four-wheel drive, getting your family to where you need to go, pulling that trailer. Make sure that you check out the Jeep and Dodge selection at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Also a great reminder that our friends at Eden Landscaping, you can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. This is a perfect time of year to be checking in with them as you begin your journey bringing your outdoor space to life. 
a custom landscape builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. They do it all. Water features, gazebos, outdoor kitchens, retaining walls, fitted beautiful patio stones. They've been doing it and earning the return business and the referrals of their customers for, as mentioned, two decades. Get in touch with Mike today at Eden Landscaping. You'll find him under the Sponsors tab on our website. All right. Well, our leadoff guest on this Monday morning is a an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at McGill University. His research looks at disinformation, political corruption, uh, and the former Soviet Union. As a matter of fact, he's got a ton of experience in that part of the world. You may have read his research published in the American Political Science Review and Comparative Political Studies. A pleasure to welcome Dr. Aaron Ehrlich to Real Talk. Uh, Professor, thanks for making time for us. You've got experience in this region. You, you, you've been living there, working there. We're talking Ukraine, uh, Georgia, other nations for about the last 20 years. Can you bring us up to speed? Sure. I, I used Before I went back to do a PhD, I worked in the NGO sector and also uh, was a little uh, lost after university and uh, taught English in Russia. So uh, I, I worked in Georgia. I was there during the 2008 war. I speak Russian and I've done a lot of work in Ukraine since the Revolution of Dignity after after 2014. Uh, so I've been around. We're, uh, I mean, obviously right now, I think the eyes of the world are trying to, you know, we're trying to process what we're seeing in uh, in this part of the world, most particularly, obviously, in the regions of Ukraine that have just been absolutely battered by this Russian bombing, this Russian aggression. As you take a look at what Vladimir Putin's doing here and, and what Russia appears to be doing here, despite obviously condemnation uh, from the rest of the world, it seems, is this coming as a surprise to you? Or would you say, did you see this coming even even years ago? I mean, it was not expected. It it has been talked a lot about in the Ukraine when you uh, when Russia annexed Crimea uh, in 2014. There was a lot of discussion at the time. Uh, there was no bridge to Crimea, so there was a lot of discussion of a land bridge to Crimea. Uh, and when uh, the Russian set Russia supported the the separatists in uh, the Donbas in Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, uh, the the Russian military was very worried about exactly exactly this scenario. So this has been uh, the Ukrainian military's concern for a long time. I think uh, insiders worried about it, but I didn't. I don't think most people expected it. So this has been sort of a long time coming. Um, you know, I, I I was watching a video this weekend. It was released. This was a, a Russian soldier that had been captured. It was unbelievable. Uh, I mean, his his disclosure, I mean, he's sitting there talking, he's giving an interview. He says, we were told this was a training exercise. He says there are hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Russian soldiers that, quite frankly, have no idea the the gravity, the magnitude, the truth of what they're doing right now. He says that he says my fellow citizens in Russia and, and I'll be honest with you, Doc, I'm watching this with a sense of cynicism, even myself. Who knows who to trust these days? But he's going, right. he's going, there are millions of Russians that have been brainwashed, that have been misled. He says, this is not Russia. This is Vladimir Putin. You think that might be accurate? I mean, you have a lot of experience here. So I watched, I watched that video as well. It was, it was, it was chilling. Um, so, yeah, this has been a concerted effort on the part of the Russian government to limit inter, uh, information to the majority of its population over years. And uh, Russia uh, uh, has worked hard to make it very difficult for average citizens to access a reliable information. 
And as we all know, the more clicks you have to make, the harder it becomes. You have to use a VPN to get something or it gets your, your connection gets really slowed down. Uh, you just access whatever is easiest to you. And whatever is easiest to the majority of the Russian population is Russian state television. And so uh, there is a lot of belief in Russian state television. Yeah, and, and this- Russian state in Russian, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, and that that comes after years and years and years of conditioning, right? I mean, this this yeah. is an environment, a reality that's been cre- that's been they've almost been groomed. Yeah, it's been going on for for a long time, and a lot of uh, people who uh, work in the region have been raising flags about it. But it, it's very hard to counteract. I think one of the major questions a lot of people are asking right now is how can uh, we help. Russians get better information because uh, we were very concerned about how Russian disinformation was influencing elections in Canada and the United States in in Ukraine, uh, but we were not paying enough attention to how the lack of information was uh, conditioning a Russian public to to do the demands of an autocrat. Okay, so you and then now, you know, you're asking this question. I know you're not asking it rhetorically. How can we ensure that credible or accurate information makes its way into Russia? Probably more challenging now than ever before. Right. With with Putin's new so-called fake news law, you've got giants like Bloomberg and the BBC and CNN and others that have basically pulled their reporters. They've stopped reporting uh, from Russia because of the the, the, uh, potential consequences. Can you help uh, help us understand this? Yeah, I mean, just so we understand how how strict this law is, if you mention the word war related to the conflict in Ukraine, you are potentially subject to 15 years in prison. So, I and, mean, this is to the point where you've got journalists, like you may have a, a hypothetically a Washington, D.C.-based journalist stationed in Moscow uh, that right now is going to go, I, I just can't do my job right now. I mean, I just can't do my job. Yeah, it is very, very difficult. Um all it, you, people have to, it is called, the, the, the Russians call it a, a special operation. And so if you defer, refer to it as anything else, uh, it is considered a crime. Uh, and it is, and so uh, there are a lot of discussions about how to get an information. Uh, there, you know, it's very hard to block various VP uh, virtual private uh, network situations, though Russia is trying. Um, uh, a lot of people are suggesting, for example, that you post on restaurant reviews what is going on. There are very few things that are not being blocked, but people are trying to get creative. Many Russian soldiers who are captured by the Ukrainians are asked to call their mothers. I mean, this is uh, is a time for creativity in spreading news. Uh, I can't verify it, but for example, uh, Anonymous appears to have uh, uh, infiltrated a lot of Russian television to try to show footage of what's actually going on in Ukraine, rather than the the sense that it's just a, a small operation to uh, kick out some Nazis, which is the the a lot of what is being said in 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 you in the Russian media. Yeah, right. Sort of being being sold here as the denazification of Ukraine. Um, that's right. Which is obviously preposterous. That that's been a long time in the coming as well. That kind of rhetoric has uh, I've been following for a long time. Uh, it is a a uh, very long-standing uh, trope in Russian disinformation to accuse uh, people who do not support them uh, in Ukraine as being Nazis. How do you see social media fitting into all of this? I mean, gosh, you and I could talk for six hours about Facebook and, and disinformation, misinformation. It wouldn't have to be limited to Russia and Ukraine, that's for sure. Uh, but there are implications here, aren't there? Yeah, um, there are a lot of implications. Uh, you know, Facebook is now blocked in Russia. Uh, 
so uh, Russians are being pushed back on to Russian owned social media, which the uh, Russian security forces have access to. Uh, and so uh, it is going to be increasingly difficult to share, uh, to share information on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> um, but the, the big issue is state media. And uh, it was very controversial. Ukraine actually blocked much of Russian state media in 2014 after the annexation, annexation of Crimea. And many uh, said that, that was abrogation of freedom of speech at the time. But I think it was actually pretty important uh, in that fight. Uh, so we are we are hung up a lot on social bots and and uh, various forms of cyborgs, or you know we can talk about all these technical terms, but um, I think we we it is important to also highlight the important role of of state media in leading the way and allowing other people to play off those messages uh, on social media. I mean there are a lot of grassroots supporters of Putin in Russia who are playing off those on social media uh, and who are now very active in in propagating that that message. I don't think it's receiving a lot of support outside of outside of uh, Russia, but it is certainly important in, in, in trying to keep those messages strong within in the Russian context. Can, doctor, can you help us? I mean, th this sort of feels like almost a foolish question. It, it makes me feel a little naive to ask it. But, you know, you've got a country um, there, there, there's hundreds of millions of people there. And, and it's um, it's a, it's it's there are smart people there. Right. And um, you, you get to a certain degree or a certain point where you go. At what point do you and, and again, this is the naive part of me, but but at what point do you kind of realize what's going on? Like when all the international news sources are vanishing, when you're seeing evidence around you that maybe this isn't a training exercise, when your credit cards are being shut off and your social media is gone and your post-secondary student visas are being pulled. And at some point, the Russian population, you have to assume, wakes up to a certain degree. Right. I mean, how? How does that happen? Can you give us some insight into the population? Yeah, so this is a this is a great question. Uh, the Russia is there are two Russias to be to be to be to simplify it a great deal. There's the urban Russia of about three cities: uh, Moscow, Saint Petersburg, Saint Petersburg, and probably Krasnodar. Uh, and in those areas, there the populations are educated. They know how to use technology to get around uh, media sensors. There's there are people that know what's going on, and many of them are leaving Russia. Uh, I have friends in the Caucasus in Armenia and Georgia who are reporting villages worth of people arriving on planes uh, who are trying to get out of the country before it's too late. Uh, and those are mainly uh, upper middle class educated people who potentially see a certain writing on the wall. But Russia is a massively large country. Uh, and the, much of the population that are not in those uh, cities are very isolated. Uh, and, uh, you know, their credit card uh, doesn't really, you know, they don't necessarily have a lot of money in their bank account. Russian credit cards still work in Russia. So even though Visa and MasterCard have pulled out, you can, the, the Ministry of Finance uh, of Russia sent out on Telegram today, you know, you can still access all your bank accounts uh, and you can still use those cards to conduct transactions. And so there are two responses. There's the response of a, a educated, see the writing on the wall, and there's a response of the population that is is continuing to buy in that that they need to support their government in this in this time and that every the the narrative that everybody is against us that they don't understand us uh, and that uh, that uh, we we are supporting our um, our troops 
uh, and we are supporting our own. There are chilling videos if you go onto social media to see uh, the imagery of what those groups supporting the, um, uh, the Russian military and the Russian uh, campaign look like. There's now a big Z or a Z on the front of the vehicles. The Z is now the logo. It looks very similar to uh, Nazi era types of uh, insignias. Uh, and there are many that, that that connection has been drawn by many. We're talking to Dr. Aaron Ehrlich uh, out of McGill University. When we announced yesterday from our, our uh, show's Twitter account that you were going to be joining us, someone by the name of Charvi said, uh, I'm sure that you'll uh, touch on Putin's plan to withdraw Russia from the Internet on March 11th. What's that going to be like for Russians? Um, uh, shout out and credit to Charvi because I, I didn't even know what that was about. I had no idea what that was about. So I started to do a little bit of digging. Can, can you take us into this? I, I'm actually not exact. I, I have not been up to date on that, so I would I would not be able to comment exactly on what their plan is. I assume that the plan is something like the the Chinese the Chinese uh, the Chi what the Chinese currently have, which is uh, basically a very strict control of what people have access to the so-called Great Chinese Firewall. Right. Um, uh, so so that there will be they're trying to limit basically. Uh, access uh, and control 100% what uh, what people have access to, and that uh, it's. But I, I don't know exactly what the, the plans are. But you know, it just goes it goes to show, like, and I know that I'm not offering anything profound here. You're the expert, not me. But if you can control people's information, and if you can, to a great degree, influence what people think. Uh, then, then all of a sudden you can accomplish anything. I mean, I, th I think of uh, in the United States that that Pizzagate controversy that, that, you know, culminated in a guy showing up with an assault rifle to a pizza joint, you know, convinced that there was a child sex ring in the basement because he'd been reading about it on QAnon. I mean, how many people face serious consequences or, or even maybe the degradation or loss of their personal relationships because of involvement in the, the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C., or, or, or perhaps even the recent Ottawa occupation? You see what some people, I don't think they're all deluded, but some people, what they have been led to believe is in, in, in the eyes of a rational person might qualify as, as preposterous. Uh, but if you can control that information and the flow of information and the source of information, uh, essentially you can control people. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think in some ways, actually, uh, you and the media are are the experts on this because what we've seen is um, that that freedom of information uh, does really matter. But there's with freedom becomes responsibility, uh, and one cannot one cannot uh, just put anything out there. Uh, and expect it to not have consequences. And when we don't, we don't actually take responsibility for for what we're saying. Uh, then, then it can really have terrible consequences. And I think you see uh, in Ch both in China and in Russia that there's going to be a great drive to try to significantly. Uh, even further control what the populations have access to. And of course, there will be some small elites that will work hard to, to get around that, but there will be an immense amount of cheerleading as well uh, in support of the regime. Um, and it is going to be a, a serious task to try to undermine those messaging. I don't think we've been terribly successful uh, in China, for example, on that either. Uh, and uh, so the work is cut out to have people um, uh, not have this reality constructed for them. We're sitting here on Zoom. It's uh, uh, people are really now with with after COVID are very cloistered, and it's very easy to lose touch with what's going on. 
Uh, I think, you know, we all know that we feel that everywhere now uh, that, uh, you know, you hear this Pizzagate thing and, you know, maybe it's real. You haven't been outside in two weeks. Uh, and then you just went to the groceries, get some groceries. Mm. Can I ask just in closing, Aaron, a, a personal question? Yeah. You know, you you know, you were in sure. Georgia right during the Russian invasion in 08. You've carried out extensive field work in Ukraine. Uh, for the last seven years or so. Um, how are you processing, processing all this? I would imagine you have a connection to the region and to many of the people there. How are you processing this personally? I mean, uh, I mean, I should say that, you know, for those who have, you know, many, many Canadians and family, many Canadians immigrated uh, uh, from Ukraine, uh, particularly in the prairies. And uh, I think people are having an immense amount of trouble. I actually broke down in tears in class. I have several Ukrainian students, uh, Ukrainian Canadian students, uh, and Ukrainian American students in my class. Uh, uh, it is it is it is very difficult for a lot of people to to process this. Uh, I'm in touch with colleagues there. Some have stayed uh, and are reporting about you know friends uh, passing away in conflict uh, and their friend neighbors' buildings being bombed out. Uh, talk with other colleagues who, you know, have uh, driven their families either to the far west of Ukraine or to the Polish border. But uh, men of military age uh, are all being now required to serve. So everybody is being, uh, uh, men are going to war. And uh, that is very, is heartbreaking for families, many with young children. Uh, it's, it's just a personal and humanitarian catastrophe on a massive scale. One million people have now uh, apparently uh, fled uh, the country. Uh, just, you know, that is uh, the size of many Canadian cities. Uh, there aren't too many Canadian cities, in fact, bigger than that. Uh, and so you think about the size of the population and the personal trauma, uh, that is just amazing. And these are families where in a generation, gener you know, every generation has, has in some ways uh, had such a trauma like this. Ukraine was devastated by World War II. Um, was devastated by the Soviet invasion, the Soviet uh, decolonization of Ukraine, where peasants were basically uh, in famine, uh, and, and well, people were accused of being wealthy and lost everything. Uh, much of my family actually left uh, Ukraine in 1921. Mm. Um, so it is a. Uh, a a catastrophe on a, a scale that has not been seen in Europe since 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 World War II. Unbelievable perspective. Uh, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today, Doctor. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure being here, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate you uh, your work you're doing. You got it. That's Doctor Aaron Ehrlich, uh, a political scientist out of McGill University. Uh, obviously has a ton of experience and, and insight, uh, in particular in the disinformation campaigns out of Russia. But but as you can tell, obviously, a great handle of the reality of what's going on there. Sure, appreciate his perspective. You can give him a follow on Twitter. Uh, you can follow all of our guests on Twitter. Sarah does a, a great job every morning, about an hour-ish before we go on uh, live at 830 Mountain. 1030 Eastern with all the handles of guests that have social media. And we know a lot of you have written into us uh, saying, hey, you know, you go, the majority of my new Twitter followers are always people that I see on Real Talk. And we appreciate that it's good stuff from Dr. Ehrlich there. If you're the type of person that, that endeavors to learn more, to know more, to understand more, let me recommend right now Athabasca University. I talked to you about Canada's online university 
all the time and I'm enthusiastic about it because we keep getting feedback from real talkers. Some of you have taken a program or a course or a certification. Others of you are pursuing a full-blown degree at Athabasca University. You know that they serve over 40,000 students offering more than 850 courses in more than 55 undergraduate and graduate programs. Arts, science, professional disciplines, they employ over a thousand faculty and staff members and they've got over 350 collaborative agreements with other Canadian and international post-secondary institutions. The point is Athabasca University, the footprint that it has It's a huge one, and chances are, no matter what you're looking to do, you're going to find a fit at AthabascaU.ca. You can learn at your own pace, understand more about how they operate and how you can get started and enroll. Our friends at Local Environmental, so good to see a couple of their team members over the weekend in person. I was getting up to speed on how they're growing their business across Alberta and Saskatchewan, not just in waste and recycling management, we tell you about that all the time, but water hauling and fencing and vacuum trucks and portable toilets. I mean, they do it all. If you're looking to organize a big community event, it's not too soon to start thinking ahead to the music festivals or the golf tournaments or anything else you might need their services. You'll find them online at localenvironmental.ca. And don't forget, they proudly present Trash Talk every Friday here on the show. If you got something to get off your chest, you can send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are pretty excited about their new Stack Burger rollout. This Just these past couple of weeks have been big, and they're seeing a lot of traffic at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. I don't know if it's because of the Bacon 2 Cheese Deluxe. Maybe it's the Flamethrower Signature Stack Burger, the Loaded Steakhouse Signature Stack Burger, the Mushroom Cheeseburger, the Original Cheeseburger, and the 2 Cheese Deluxe. The beauty about these Stack Burgers is you can make them singles, doubles, or even triples, depending on your hunger level. You'll find them these signature stack burgers at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. In just a few minutes, uh, we're going to check in with the creator of Little Mosque on the Prairie, one of the most popular Canadian-grown television shows in our country's history. Zarka Nawaz is going to join us. Uh, She's got a a moving and insightful piece in the Globe and Mail, a new book, a new web series coming out. Uh, There's a lot going on, and I'm looking forward to that conversation, how the Ottawa occupation of Vladimir Putin is making Muslims look good. An interesting perspective. Wanted to get to a couple of your emails too. Christy was in touch with us after our conversation about immunocompromised people and mask mandates and, and lifting of those masks, lifting of the the uh, restrictions, you might call them, in places, uh, public places like hockey arenas or grocery stores or restaurants or what have you. Uh, Christy says, I was, uh, my father says, I have a personal story to tell. My father was immunocompromised after a heart transplant in the early 2000s. Um, Transplant recipients, at least at that time, had the highest rates of organ rejection and were consistently and and, and consequently on the highest doses of the anti-rejection drugs that all transplant recipients take for the entirety of their post-transplant lives. So heart transplant recipients in particular uh, especially vulnerable. She says any of the number of things for which we vaccinate had had a really good chance of, quite frankly, taking my father out, <laughs> though any number of things for which we do not vaccinate could also have done the exact same thing. Getting an organ transplant is no walk in the park. 
and the requirements that the transplant teams have for patients, both pre and post op, uh, you know, there's there's they're, they're there for a reason. Uh, these surgeries and life after them, it's not a joke. There are certainly steps that immunocompromised people take to keep themselves safe. But the fact that a lot of people don't seem to grasp is that dealing with an immunocompromised scenario means you also spend a lot of time worrying about your family members when they inevitably fall ill. You know, she says this is the risk you take for a longer life. Because keep in mind, in order to be eligible for a transplant, you're on death's door. She says at some point, yes. We do need to get on with our lives. I don't know a single person who doesn't believe that. However, says Christy, transplant patients and most of the immunocompromised population would not qualify for life-saving interventions in a scenario where care in emergency rooms or ICUs was being triaged. That's if there's space for them at all. You know, these tough decisions that politicians and that healthcare professionals talk about, triage, where they have to decide who gets the ICU bed and who doesn't. Christy says, never mind the increased risk that they're out of secondary infection in a hospital setting. So while I do agree that life has to move on, maybe this isn't the best time to turn some people into sacrificial lambs. Johnny, we can hear you. We can hear you. Maybe not the best time to turn them into sacrificial lambs so that the boys can head down to the pub to watch the game and have a few beers. Maybe we could hang on a bit and wait for hospital capacity to regulate itself and for surgeries to catch up. That from Christy. That's a fair comment, and I sure appreciate it. We also have this one from Jill who wrote in to say, I wanted to talk about how cystic fibrosis came up in your show last week when you were talking about masks and the immunocompromised. And she says, I was already planning to email you. My son, Chris, died in 2001, 23 years of age. Jill, we're so sorry for your loss. She says he had CF, but he was always healthy, especially in the hockey years. He was good. He, he just, he just, you know, I mean, he, you know, he was motivated by what he probably knew was going to be a short life and he just gave it his all and and since covid i've lived the life of imagining protecting my son and i've not understood how so many people seemingly just they come across like they don't care about others and i have to be honest ryan says jill my worldview has definitely been altered she says pneumonia killed my son four months after he was deemed too healthy for a lung transplant says he'd also become sick in hospital. And, and like what we heard from you on the show, CF kids have always been separated. They've not been able to be together. And she says, I, I can't imagine isolating through the last couple of years, but it probably would explain my almost total isolation from life. She says, even, even your guests later, the wellness roundtable you had, where you're talking about diet, sleep, and exercise. My son, Chris, required many calories to sustain heart function because his lungs were not perfect. He was an athlete, and so I became an inventive cook. There were so many calories to incorporate. We did not have your typical standard family meal plan. She says, oh, and by the way, your conversation on police and people with mental illness, she says, one thing that continues to make me shout at the radio and television is this sort of new idea of pairing police officers with psychiatric help like counselors or interventionists. She says, let's agree that cops are not social workers, nor should they be. That's not a new idea. Jill says, in the late 80s, I was part of a provincial and then a more local committee to deal with this, to try to address this. And she says, I, I can't comment or I won't comment on the racial motives of this situation. She's talking about Lat George Toole down in Calgary, the man 41 years of age, shot by police and killed. 
She says, but the killing of people with psychiatric problems tragically is not a new one. The idea of police accompanied by psychiatric support is not a new one. She says the political will to avoid financing it. Well, that's not new either. The time is now. Jill says, sorry to go on and on and on. (laughs) Don't ever apologize. That's a committed listener right there. That's somebody who's taking in our interviews. It's resonating with her and she's got a lot to say. And Jill, I can't tell you how grateful we are for your personal perspective. You can email the show anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It's always so good to hear from the people that are showing up every day that are watching or that are downloading and listening to this show. You're the reason why we do this. And we want to know how these interviews and conversations are landing with you. Well, our next guest is behind one of the most popular television shows in Canadian history. You know, Little Mosque on the Prairie. Uh, She's also the author of Jamila Green Ruins Everything, which is coming out tomorrow and a new web series coming to Gem on May 13th. It was her opinion piece in the Globe and Mail that prompted us to reach out to her and say, Zarka, you've got to join us on Real Talk right away. It was published on March 4th, The Freedom Convoy, and now Putin making Muslims look good. Zarka Nawaz, welcome to Real Talk. I want to ask you about so much stuff. Uh, Little Mosque on the Prairie was an unbelievable show, and, and and it accomplished a lot. And I want to talk to you about that. But but let's get into your piece in the Globe first, because everybody's talking about this: the Freedom Convoy and now Putin making Muslims look good. What prompted you to start typing out? What what prompted you to start putting your thoughts down here and submitting them to the Globe? I was listening to these just flabbergasted CBC reporters talking about the terrorists and the radicalized people and, you know, the money that's going to be um, funding hate groups. And, and I was like, oh my God, those are the exact same words that they have used for Muslims forever. And now suddenly I'm hearing the same words being used for white truckers. And I mean, I know it's not funny, but it made me laugh as a comedy writer. And I just had to say something about how strange it feels for a person of color, particularly a Muslim person, to hear words that have been used for my community now suddenly being used for white people. And and how the reporters just seemed shocked and out of their minds and they just couldn't believe that they were seeing this in their own country. And I just had to speak out. Hmm. I mean, your one line in the piece that just leapt off the page to me, you say, diversity and inclusion are finally (laughs) being extended to the world of terrorism. Like, it's not funny, but it is funny and it's bang on. Yeah, I, it was actually my daughter's line when I was writing this out. And, and then she kind of made this wry remark about, you know, inclusion finally includes white people. And I was like, oh, my God, I've got to include this in this piece. It's I mean, as a comedy writer, I have to find the funny in everything. It helps me cope with the world. And it just, you know, people were so shocked and the, the reporters were so shocked. And every all these no one could understand how this was happening in our country, in Canada, right wing extremists, right wing supremacists, the Nazis, you know, flags. What is happening? This is not Canada. And it like it just it just brought to bear like the double standards we have when we see white people doing bad things versus when we see Muslims doing bad things and how when it's a Muslim, we just paint the entire community like every single person has to be like this and and how we are as Muslims expected to stand up and apologize constantly and explain 
you know, ourselves to people, but th that same sort of level is not given to white people. No one is expected to s defend all white people now and explain why this is happening. And I just had to bring out that double standard. Yeah, you, you, you don't see uh, people looking to drag evangelical pastors in front of cameras to denounce the actions of people occupying Ottawa, do you? I mean, you didn't see a lot of people um, insisting that Baptist ministers or Catholic priests stand and conduct media scrums and explain how, you know, January 6th came about and how the entire Congress, right? I mean, it just doesn't happen. Uh, but you certainly see that uh, in other instances, right? Extremist activity around the world involving an extreme interpretation of Islam or however you want to characterize it. One of the things that struck me and you write about this is when we saw what happened January 6th in D.C., uh, a year and a bit ago, or when we even saw it, the Coots border blockade or in Ottawa, and you'd, you'd see some people almost in hushed tones. Um, and I witnessed it personally. I had these conversations personally with friends of mine where they go, I, I think that this almost like this kind of feels like domestic terrorism. Like this is almost like, but they nobody wanted to like say it out loud. Right. And I had this conversation with a couple of buddies and, and, and I was saying, can you imagine if it was a, and I think I said it on the show too, if it was a, a Black Lives Matter protest that jammed up the Coots border crossing and then RCMP found, I don't know, 15 assault weapons and thousands of rounds of ammunition, I don't know that there'd be debate, right, on whether or not this was an act of domestic terrorism. I think that the participants would be condemned long before that. Yeah, and I, and I think now, you know, we are seeing the repercussions of ignoring what you are calling domestic terrorism, which is domestic terrorism, because people have been focused on Muslims and Islam for so long that when domestic terrorism happens involving white people, people are caught off guard. They understand like it's new, it just happened. It's like, this has been happening for a very long time. I remember in 1995 when Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building in the US and it was considered the biggest domestic terror case in that time. And I remember looking at the Toronto Star and seeing pictures of Muslim suspects who are being pulled off planes. And then two days later, a white guy gets arrested. And the, and the media doing this 180 and saying, how, how is this happening? And, and then being, get, you know, they were caught off guard in the 1990s. And I feel like they're starting to play catch up now. You know, we're seeing it now. What do you think, uh, or what do you know? I mean, I, I want to ask you about the thing about friends and Little Mosque on the Prairie. I'll let you tell that story because it's fascinating. But but what did, in your estimation, Little Mosque on the Prairie accomplish with regards to influencing people's attitudes, in particular Canadians' attitudes, about the Muslim faith and people who follow? I've been asked this question a lot, and and I wouldn't have known how to answer it until I got this call from CNN <laughs> a few years ago and they said, did you know someone actually studied your show? And they did a double blind study where they showed episodes of Little Mosque on the Prairie and then episodes of Friends. And then they measured levels of prejudice and bias against Muslims. And that level dropped when people watched Little Mosque on the Prairie versus people who just watched Friends. And that's when the penny dropped for me when I realized that television has that much of an impact on how we view other people that we don't know, normally meet every day. And if you only ever see brown and black people on the media and the news, um, it, you know, in situations of violence or terrorism, then that's all you're gonna think that community is. And this is a community that perpetuates acts of violence and terrorism, and we need to be afraid of them. And they are scary and we need to protect ourselves. And if Little Mosque on the Prairie is the only show that you ever come across Muslim, 
then it's going to change your attitude towards Muslims because this is the first time you see Muslims raising children, going to work, cheating on their taxes, acting like everybody else and in, you know, in quotes, normal people. And that has such a profound effect on the level of racism and bias against a group of people. And and that's a scary thing because there are not a lot of shows out there about Muslims or people of color. And and the, and if you see what an impact it's making, it's then you have to wonder, like you know, because because I get asked all the time, the rates of violence against people of color, particularly Muslims and Asians, is still going up. You know, ha- have you seen it going down since the Lamas came out? And I and I have to say no, but it was just one show, and you can't expect one show to change everything. It's like a drop in the bucket. Huh. But. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's your assessment. I, I, I feel like as an observer and as a fan of the show that it was more than a drop in the bucket. But I, I recognize the point you're making, to be sure. You know, one of my favorite interviews uh, in the history of this show a year and a bit was with Andrew Fung, one of the stars of Kim's Convenience and his insights into um, racism, representation on television, uh, the immigrant experience. Uh, really interesting. And uh, and I don't know if he would say profound, but I thought so. I appreciated those insights when you've written about Little Mosque on the Prairie. You talked about how you thought that it or it was maybe an effort to um, I don't have your quote in front of me, but you said to to humanize Muslims, which I'm sure you must have had mixed feelings about, because as as I also know, you wrote, you said Muslims are human. Like you shouldn't require effort to humanize humans. uh, And yet it did. It did. It did. And and, and, And you're right. Like I shouldn't diminish the the power that show had. In fact, it was. Little Mosque on the Prairie and Corner Gas that came, two shows that came out of Saskatchewan that revitalized the entire television industry in our country. Because prior to those two shows, you know, we couldn't get Canadians to watch Canadian television shows in large numbers. And then this show comes out. And one of the reasons Little Mosque on the Prairie was so successful was because the Americans were so convinced that Muslims were going to destroy the CPC and someone was going to blow up the building and cars were going to get flipped and that CBC was making such a huge mistake with this television show that all these reporters from around the world were watching us and suddenly Canadians were like why why are all these international reporters descending on Canada for this television show so then the Canadian media started paying attention and we finally got like the millions and millions of dollars of what normally ad dollars would get us in terms of publicity and people watched the show and CBC had the highest ratings it did in 20 years. And it just goes to show you that fear that something terrible was going to happen to CBC drove people to watch this show. And then nothing happened. Everybody watched it. They go, this is kind of funny. And then they kept watching it and it gave us the ratings that we needed to sustain ourselves because you need ratings yeah. for to drive ad dollars to, to, to sustain the, I mean, it, it costs almost a million dollars an episode to get it, you know, an hour of broadcast television Is that right? on the air. It's, it was, it cost $766,000 an episode to make a little mosque on the prairie. And wow. th- that's how, that's how much it costs to make television. It is incredibly expensive. And to justify that you need ratings, you need ads. I mean, that's just the reality of television. And before corner gas and little mosque, we couldn't get enough eyeballs onto the screens in Canadian television to to justify that cost. And now we see this incredible renaissance in Canadian television, and you see t- incredible shows like King's Convenience and Schitt's Creek coming to the airwaves. And since Little Mosque on the Prairie aired, it gave Hollywood this confidence that you could have a show with non-white leads that white people would watch. 
and they didn't believe that before. And and I would get all these calls from Hollywood to you know pitch to them to write pilots. And then I saw gradually Hollywood start to open up. You know, we got to see more diverse television like Jane the Virgin, Superstore, even Modern Family. And I noticed that it, it, Little Mosque on the Prairie gave Hollywood the confidence that you could have diverse programming and still be a mainstream ratings hit. I'm I'm so enjoying this conversation. I'm the, the, talking to the creator of Little Mosque on the Prairie about the shows that resonate with you and hearing you list them off is a fascinating exercise. I mean, we could sit here and talk for three hours. Don't get me going on Shit's Creek because I'll, I'll start going and we won't stop. Uh, I want to bring the focus back. Um, to your piece in the Globe, uh, the Freedom Convoy, now Putin, you say, are making Muslims look good. How are you, I mean, through which lens, and I guess maybe a bit of a, uh, the question may be too general, um, but but how are you processing what you're seeing in Ukraine and this Russian aggression? And in particular, let's focus on uh, what uh, the, the good doctor out of McGill was just talking to us about, what Aaron Erlach was talking to us about, um, this this flood of uh, refugees, about a million people so far have left Ukraine, and that number will, of course, increase um, through your lens, how are you processing it? It's interesting because I think prior to the invasion of Ukraine, when people thought of refugees, they only associated it with brown and black people, as if those sort of issues and problems only happened over there to those people because their countries and their you know situation just somehow, it's just always like that. And that's the way they live. And I think it's opened up people's eyes to that the fact that anyone can become a refugee. A refugee isn't based on race or color. It's based on situation and what happens to you. And I think, you know, and I, what I wanted to mention in my piece was that you saw universally across the globe, reporters just, you know, unable to fathom that this is happening to white people in as quote unquote civilized place, as if somehow they didn't deserve it. And this is, and we should have more sympathy towards white people. And you know, it was incredible. Like when, when I was reading these reports of of, of reporters d- discussing Ukraine as if it's a place unlike any other place in the world. And you have to remember, in two thousand and three, America dropped bombs on Iraq for having weapons of non destruction for which never existed. Mm. <laughs> and it's like. It's like, and people were like, oh, okay. You know, it's like those lives, they're brown, black lives. It's almost like those lives don't have the same value as a white life. And the the and the way we are seeing the double standards are so stark. I mean, if you watch Trevor Noah, he did an incredible piece on, he does, you know, he brings all the reports of all these reporters and how they're talking about this situation. And he talks about like, why should we have more sympathy towards one place than another place? The lives of white people matter more than the lives of brown and black people. And, and the fact that you have citizens, black citizens who are Ukrainian, as well as students who are brown and black, and you can see the differences in how they are being treated on the borders. They are being turned back. They're being told that you can't go. You can't, you have, you can't get on the buses and trains. We have to let the white people on first. They get priority. And, and you're like, but why? Just because of the color of their skin. And, yeah. and, and now these stories are coming out and they're so stark that, that, that the double standards are very, very obvious. And this well, you is what can't, the war has bring out. You, you can't ignore them. And, and, and I, uh, you know, we have an audience that holds our feet to the fire and, and, and an astute and engaged audience. And I appreciate a lot of the feedback that we've been getting from people that are, you know, and, and a lot of these questions, um, I don't have, and I know people don't expect me to have some sort of an answer to them, but I don't have an answer. So people will say, well, how is, how is this any different 
than what's going on, you know, the Palestinian plight or, or how is this any different or the Ukrainian uh, refugees? How is their situation different than the Syrians or where was the international community or 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 where were, you know, quite frankly, you know, professional sports teams singing Syria's national anthem or, you know, back in. I mean, we look at all the, the, the support that there is for Ukraine these days. And, and I feel like I try to approach, um, you know, uh, Zarka, this delicately because at the same time you don't want it to sound like you don't think that ukraine deserves the support um but where was that support for other people in very similar circumstances i mean you had you have like hundreds of thousands millions of syrians um and i don't know that people really truly understand like syria for many years was the country that accepted more refugees than any other country on the planet uh for several years until syrians became refugees themselves um, attacked by their own government, attacked by their own leader. And it's it's something that I don't think that we have enough of a gutsy conversation about as a society. And maybe that's just because it makes us uncomfortable. I don't know. But like you said, it's unignorable. Yeah. And, and like you said, we should have sympathy for the Ukrainians. I of don't course. want to take sympathy away from them. Absolutely. You and I are not trying to say that at all. What we are saying is we should have sympathy for everyone in the same way. And this situation is just bringing out the double standards where we've become numb to the wars that brown and black people face. And then people, you know, and then the reports are like, well, you know, that goes on all the time. I'm like, but why does it go on all the time? Because we have imperialistic interference. It's it's what drove me to write my book, Jamila Green Ruins Everything, is when ISIS happened and, and people were blaming Muslims and saying, oh, well, you know, that's how Muslims are. They they just become radicalized jihadists and they want to fight people and kill people and it's in their blood and it's their nature. And I was like, damn it, I'm writing a book to explain how American foreign policy created the conditions in Iraq to for this group to form. They wouldn't even have existed if the Americans hadn't gone in in 2003 and bombed Iraq to smithereens and put in an incompetent you know, provisional government that did all these mistakes in Iraq and created a power vacuum that resulted in this group being created. And I had to write it as a satire because I think people get tired of reading serious stories about the problems in the Middle East. You know? uh. And and I thought, okay, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna open up people's eyes and write a satire about ISIS. Maybe possibly the first satire that's ever been written because it, because in the book I explained the background of all this you know, the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War, Afghanistan, the Russian invasion, how all these wars have ultimately created Taliban and ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all these Muslim boogeymen that, that the media is obsessed with and believes represent us. And, and people don't realize you have to go back into history and find out the political context of how these groups emerged and how colonialism, colonialism imperialism, American foreign policy, you know, created such um, instability in these countries that these groups emerged. And we have to view them in the political context of how it happened. Otherwise, people just keep repeating the same things. You know, this is how brown and pe black people behave. They deserve it. It's their worldview. They've caused their own problems and they now have to suffer because of, you know, and you're like, no, did, did the Ukraine deserve this? No, they didn't. They were not the architects of this war. Mm. And and you and we and we're willing to go into detail about why Russia is doing this, what caused them to feel like this, what are the background and the history. And people want to research this because they care. And I want people to also care about what happened in Afghanistan and what happened in Syria and Iraq. And this is, and for me, this, you know, my I only have one marketable skill, Ryan, and that is to write comedy and 
and write it in a way that people can understand the world and process the world. And hopefully that will bring another level of justice to how we see one another. Yeah. Well, I, the audience will probably insist that I push back on your you only have one marketable skill uh, assertion. But uh, I think it goes without saying that that marketable skill is serving you pretty well. It's a huge week for you. Is it a, is it a coincidence or is it intentional that Jamila Green ruins everything is being released on International Women's Day? It's a coincidence. I started yeah. writing this in 2014 when ISIS first emerged and all these, you know, as you know, Muslims are, we are forever trying to play the PR game and trying to make ourselves look human. And I was like, no, this can't be happening. What is this group? And every headline, you know, in the newspapers was about this group. And so then I started writing this book and it took, you know, six years um, of writing and researching and trying to figure out what was happening. And then finally being able to sell it to a mainstream publisher because at, at the beginning the publishers were like this story is just too crazy no one's going to believe it you need to pull back and maybe you don't need to go all the way to the middle east and i'm like no i need to i need to go to the middle east i need to write this story and this, because what i am writing about in this book even though it's fiction is happening on the ground it happened to real people the story is not over the top and i had to stick to my guns and not water it down because you know the things i'm talking about even though they're, they're satirical happen to real people Hmm. Uh, as mentioned, a big week for you. Your book comes out tomorrow. Uh, Jamila Green ruins everything. And then you've got this new CBC gem web series, Zarka, that comes out on, uh, or pardon me, on May 13th. Um, so a big couple of months for you. Uh, can you tell us about it a little bit? <laughs> okay, it's not autobiographical. I just want to tell people right now, okay. I'm happily married. I'm not divorced. So it is about a middle-aged Muslim woman <laughs> whose husband... <laughs> divorces her and posts on Facebook that he is getting remarried to a white yoga instructor half her age and then she sees all the posts coming up going nice upgrade from all his male friends and she gets her back up and she tells everybody online that she too will be coming to this wedding with her white brain surgeon boyfriend named Brian and he becomes her revenge fantasy and then she has to go online and find him and lo and behold she does find him but he poor Brian just wants a real relationship with this brown Muslim woman because he has a bit of a fetish and he won't date her and come to this wedding until she agrees to date him and then he picks all these really kind of stereotypical white dates like birding and she's like I can't birding. believe I have to do this and so she goes on these dates and it's a comedy based on how I felt that in Hollywood, we never have brown middle-aged Muslim women as leads who are considered desirable. It's always, you know, if you have a white man, it's, it has to be a white woman or if it has to be if it's a man of color, he has to find the white trophy romantic lead. And I wanted to make fun of that stereotype and show here's, here's a woman who's going to go after the whole stereotype of the white yoga instructor, you know, half your age when a man marries that woman, I'm going to say, hey, instead of getting jealous, I'll compete with my white trophy <laughs> with a white brain surgeon named Brian. And so it's a comedy about how I'm competing with my white trophy against my ex-husband's white trophy and we're going after it. So it's about stereotypes versus stereotypes. And I wanted to sort of take turn that whole issue on its head. And then what happens to this poor woman who just wanted a re revenge fantasy, but she ends up, you know, getting all these men who are now interested in her. <laughs> Yeah. Careful what you ask for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a little cringeworthy for my sons who are like watching their father going, how, why are you not watching your woman? <laughs> <laughs> how does your, how does your creative process work? Like, how did you, you say, you say you've been working on your book for almost eight years. Um, do you always kind of have working things? Do you have papers scattered everywhere with ideas scribbled down? I mean, how, how does your creative process unfold? 
usually something has to really upset me. Like I usually have to see something on the news, watch something on the news, read somebody's think piece, notice something shifting in the environment. And then I kind of get hold of it and I go, oh, how can I talk about it but differently in a way that nobody else has ever talked about it? And like for like my web series is about the whole romantic trope, how we don't see, you know, Muslim women as romantic heroes in Hollywood. You, you know, it's just one particular type of woman you will see. And so I wanted to poke fun at that. I was reading a lot of think pieces from brown women who are really angry at how they were perceived in romantic, you know, um, television shows. They were like a, a white man or a brown man will maybe date a brown or black woman, but then there'll be romantic foils pushed aside for the white woman. And I thought, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> What if that brown woman decides to compete with her trope, a white man, and push back? And that were that was where that idea came from. So I like finding things um, that really bother me or are upsetting me. And instead of getting upset, I decide to take them on with comedy and satire and see, and then have people laugh at that. Because when people are willing to laugh at these really difficult and painful issues, it kind of opens up their mind. And if they weren't willing to see me halfway before, maybe they will now. We've got some great comments of people that are watching us live on YouTube right now. Jen says, when we talk about what information people get, I mean, this, there's been a synergy between our two interviews today. Um, she says, we need to talk about the information that we got about the Middle East. Uh, she says, there's history that we were not told. And so then we can support those wars. I mean, Zarka, you talked about the weapons of mass destruction as an example. I remember as a kid, so it would have been 91, I think it was 1991, Operation Desert Storm, right? And I collected like basketball cards and, and uh, you know, hockey cards and all that kind of stuff. And they, they were selling like American war card, like collector cards. I have like the General Norman Schwarzkopf card and like the, you know, the like F-16 card and all these things. It's just such a weird thing to collect. Uh, but you think about maybe the motivation behind that and why you would get kids collecting those cards. I don't know. And I also think this is an intuitive one from Genevieve who says, I'm waiting for Canada to get its act together and get more Afghani refugees on planes. They matter too. Um, let me close on a serious note with you. The, uh, I mean, your you, American foreign policy, obviously you've been critical about it. You write about it in your book, Jamila Green Ruins Everything. Um, what did you make of, of international withdrawal out of Afghanistan? The most prominent one certainly I think was the Americans pulling out a 20-year war in Afghanistan for the Americans, but a lot of people were dissatisfied with how that all played out. Some pretty heartbreaking images to see people literally trying to get up into the what do you call them? The underbellies of those airplanes, like in the landing gear. I mean, it was just it, the desperation that we saw there was so telling and uh, hardly mission accomplished. Um, how did you wrap your mind around that? Yeah, no, I write about that war also. It, it was tragic. I mean, people used Muslim women and Muslim women's images like we have to save the Muslim woman. Right. And that that image of the Muslim woman as being oppressed and a victim and needing saving and and the pictures of her in the burqa and and the Taliban being like this horrible group that is oppressing women, you know, in many ways is true. But, you know, there's a whole conversation about how that group came into being as well. But I mean, we use images, you know, of stereotypical um, attitudes of Muslims, particularly women, to sell wars and to get people to rescue us. We don't need to be rescued, we, and and though and and it's sold to us. I mean, the the like what you were talking about, even with Iraq, that whole war when you were younger, they hired a PR firm to create um, a whole image of babies being ripped out of incubators by Iraqi forces, which never happened. And so, certain images 
of Muslims needed needing help and being rescued are used to sell whole scale wars to the West in a, in a way that you know you'll get buy in. Whereas what what it's really about, which is always something else, which is some personal you know the the Gulf Wars were always about oil, you know, and the the Afghan wars were always about you know controlling Russia and making sure they didn't get inroads into this country, and 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 being able to fund military occupation and you know, like that cost trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars and what got accomplished. And you think of all that money that could be, that could be spent on poverty, um, healthcare, how many problems can be solved around the world if you took that money and spent it on other things. It just boggles the mind, that boggles the mind that we're, that is such a waste. And in the end, the country only got worse and didn't yeah. get better. And, and, you know, we have almost nothing to show for it. I can't tell you how grateful I am. You're probably not watching the live chat while you're talking to me, but people are just like really enjoying your insights. And I'm so grateful you took the time to talk to us. Several of them are saying they're also pre-ordering your book right now. So that's good news. <laughs> uh, Zarka, it's been such a pleasure. I'm a big fan of your work and uh, really grateful that you took the time to talk to us. Thank you for this. And congratulations on everything coming up. It's just a, a huge year for you. Thank you so much for having me on, Ryan. I really appreciated this. You got it. That's Zarka Nawaz, her new book. Uh, you can pick it up. It's out tomorrow. Jamila Green ruins everything. And of course, her uh, web series coming up on CBC Gem May 13th. It's out Zarka. That's going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to that. Some random guy on our live chat says, uh, you know, there's the same issue. She's talking about Muslim women. He says, same issue with Asian men. Says you didn't see a lot of Asian males as being portrayed as desirable in Western media until like this decade. Uh, which is an interesting insight there. If if there's uh, anything that you know you have to say, but sometimes if you're like me and George Costanza, you, you think of it later in the day, uh, you can send us an email anytime. Or, of course, you can hit us up on Twitter. That hashtag you want to use is RealTalkRJ. That hashtag is powered by our great friends at Park Power. Everybody knows that costs are going up right now, and that includes utilities. Uh, Park Power wants to remind you that there's a couple of steps you can take right now to drop those bills right down. Okay, number one, they've got their fixed rate options. If you're sick of riding that crest, you know, that wave, you never know where it's going to go. Maybe the tide's pulling you out on these variable rates and all of a sudden you're going wait a second my bill was like twice what it was before today's a great day to go compare rates and check out the fixed rate options at park power the other is to bundle your services you'll save on administrative costs which oftentimes can be more of the bill than you think if you take at least two of their services or even all three bundle all three you'll save even more electricity natural gas and internet make sure when you sign up you use the promo code 2022 dash real talk and they'll give you 70 dollars off your first bill. Our friends at Infinity Healthcare want to remind you that it's up to you. You have the option, you have the choice to ensure that you're getting the best possible healthcare service, including with public funding. You can find them under the sponsors tab on our website, or you can go directly to infinity 8.ca. That's where you can learn about, for example, Alberta Health Services self-managed care you know many albertans think that if you require home care services that alberta health services is the only funded option that is not the case infinity wants you to know you can allocate your publicly funded home care dollars to the company or provider of your choice at real talk we recommend infinity Healthcare, and you can find them again under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com 
It was a big weekend for our friends at Friesen Brothers. How many of you were out at their first anniversary celebration at their Rabbit Hill Road store? That's the South Edmonton store. It's their 16th store in Alberta. The company, still family-owned and operating, has been in business for more than 65 years. This South Edmonton store is, without a doubt, the crown jewel. Absolutely beautiful. I know a bunch of you were tagging me in your tweets. You were down there celebrating with them this weekend. In particular, it seemed like a lot of people were excited about the sourdough, but let me let you, I, I want to tell you something else. My wife, Carrie, she was down there on Saturday. John, they have the cinnamon spread from their world-famous sourdough cinnamon buns. Oh, my. They now sell... I don't want to. I mean, I, I'm. Just, I know what this is going to do to people. They now sell the spread on the top of the cinnamon buns I separately. They sell it separately. I know. Do so you, you need, don't. E- you don't even need the buns. You can just get the spread. But do you need that much? It's like a gallon. It's such a large portion. <laughs> Not literally a gallon, <laughs> but you can just put it in the fridge, and then yeah. you, you know, a little little spoonful here, here or there. Maybe you make toast. Maybe you're making cinnamon toast. Whatever you're doing, you can pick up that spread there, and you can find out more at freezen.com. How you feeling day one? I I'm okay. Yeah, there's we've, like we've there's, had some hiccups, well, but uh, but but dude, day one, you know, you're killing it. You're doing a great job. I'm sure people will call me on it. I'll read the chat later. I'm oh, don't read the chat. No, <laughs> actually, the chat is remarkably supportive. People, great, you're doing a pretty good job. You do love pretty, it. Pretty darn good job there, John. Very well done. <laughs> Why don't we check in with the producer of the show, Sarah Hoyles, of course, uh, the editorial producer, uh, keeping an eye on news as it develops. A so good morning to you. How was your weekend? Oh, I was okay. Just, I, I I try, I, I need to stay on top of the news because I need to know what's happening and we need to book the show and like keep on top of things. But at the same time, I'm just like, I need, I need a break. I also yeah. realize that I'm very fortunate to be able to just not check Twitter or not listen to the news. Like people in Ukraine, they can't do that. And so I, I recognize that I'm, I'm fortunate that way but um it weighs heavily on me yeah no i don't blame you well why don't we uh, we we've we've had such great analysis i i loved uh, by the way uh dr Ehrlich this morning aaron did such a nice job out of mcgill and and great context there uh, we've we've talked a bit about ukraine and we'll talk about it of course through this week and and as long as this continues uh, with good insight so, so why don't we go to the stuff that'll make us a little happier and a little less discouraged toils i mean everybody's talking about batman why don't we talk about batman the, what was this the top box everybody's talking about it i saw a buddy the other day he was going to check it out in the imax theater this is apparently a pretty big deal everybody's talking about the newest batman installment yeah batman he took the top spot this weekend it becomes the second biggest pandemic debut i mean some some movie makers are just putting things simultaneously out in theaters and at home but this is nope we're gonna just stick only to the movie theaters and really it paid off for them yeah oh that's interesting because i've noticed on our uh on our on demand um i think for obvious reasons because theaters were closed for a long time or operating at limited capacity you could get what did they call them like the early home premiere or something like that but to rent the movie was like thirty dollars uh, and at first I was kind of like, that's preposterous. Like, we'll wait till it comes out on streaming. Like, I'm, we're not spending $30. And then I remembered when we go to the theater, it would be like $130. And so it's actually not too bad. Um, but yeah, no, but that was a big one. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to catching it. Have you seen it? I haven't yet. We're going this weekend. And I just, I just, I love the combo of Zoe and Pattison. I think that's one of the sexiest. I have no idea what you're talking about. Robert Pattison? Zoe Kravitz. Okay. Is that Lenny's daughter? That's Lenny's daughter. Oh, and Lisa yeah. Bonet. Yes. Yeah. Lenny and Lisa Bonet. Oh, my. So she's Catwoman. 
And uh, I just like, I love when they redo superheroes dark. I love when they, they have that second spin on them. I don't, I don't like the cheesy, like all the, the production. I like, I like the darker stuff. Batman's so. always really been kind of dark though. Hey, yeah. like the, uh, the, the darker side of it, which Definitely. I think has always been part of the magic. And then Sarah, what's uh, the prime minister met with the queen? Uh, short time ago. Whoa, I didn't whoa, know. Whoa, 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 whoa. What am I missing? What am I missing? You cannot skip over Keanu. I will not permit it. Okay, this is the new animated feature. I was. You're right. I was skipping over him. All right, we'll skip over the. Queen. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about the Queen and the Prime Minister. Let's talk he... about. <laughs> okay, let's get into this one. Keanu is a Canadian legend, a Canadian icon. He's everything. I mean, in my world, it goes dogs. And then Keanu right underneath. He is going wow. to be in the brand new DC League of Super Pets, which is an animated series. And his dog yeah. is called Crypto, and he will be voiced by The Rock. The Dwayne Rock. Dwayne Johnson. And then Kevin That's Hart, very- also part of this project. The, the Kevin Hart Dwayne Johnson relationship is like one of my favorite celebrity relationships, I think. Um, is that a, so Superman's sidekick is Crypto the Superdog. Is that kind of yes. like a, wait, Kryptonite is what brings down Superman, isn't it? Yeah. Why would he call his dog Crypto? I don't know. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Well, maybe, you know, I'll try to get Keanu on the line. If you could, actually. He might do an yeah, interview with I, uh, us. It turns I, out that he, he he's uh, he's apparently, you've, you can Google all the stories, but apparently he's the guy that, like, all the film crews and everybody says you want to work with Keanu Reeves because he's always doing these quiet little things like patting everybody's income and doing cool little random acts of kindness and never talking about them until other people spill the beans. Sounds like he's a, I guess that's why Hoyles, you have him ranked right under dogs and ahead of other humans. 100%. Yeah. And he was in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yeah. So. Okay. Five seconds on the Queen and the PM. She She had COVID, right? She did, and this is the very first meeting that she has had since getting better from that. Some people are poo-pooing that they're not wearing masks, but I can guarantee you that there's a lot of protocol in place to make sure that both of those folks are safe and well. Yeah. Um, so he's actually in Europe, um, in the UK, because they're having a meeting with a variety of folks, including Boris Johnson, the PM of England, to... Uh, to deal with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I mean, f- try to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> Russia was a no show at the international court hearing to look at war crimes. Not surprising there. Um, Ukraine, the folks that was re- that were representing Ukraine said that Putin lies and Ukrainian citizens die. You know, uh, I mean, I know that this is the most obvious thing that I could possibly say, but, but Russia continues to alienate itself from the international community. Like, like with every step, and every, you know, as this goes, I mean, it's uh, it's it's the story as it develops. Um, I can relate to what you're saying, Sarah. You know, we, we obviously got to stay on top of these stories and it's what we do and it's what we bring to people. This show um, for a lot of people is, is how they get their analysis of world events and things like that. But, you know, for me, for the better part of the weekend, it was skating with my little guy doing a little winter jumping on the trampoline and trying to soak in the hot tub and trying to take my mind away from it because the more that i think about what's going on in russia uh or rather in ukraine uh because of russian aggression it just i i I just get a pit in my stomach and and that's not to mention all the other stuff right uh that's happening here on home soil and covid and everything else so uh, we do endeavor to find that balance um and a big part of that is this feature every monday as a matter of fact we sort of kick off our broadcast week so to speak um this is a feature presented by our very good friends at kubi energy 
uh, we want to remind you that there is good in the world. And that's why we bring you positive reflections. Johnny, can you load up that one that I sent you from Shad Davis? This is amazing. I saw this on Instagram the other day. This is from a guy by the name of Shad Davis. He says, so I forgot. I don't know Shah. He says, so I forgot to change down in the United States. I forgot to change my address in my Chipotle app. You know, the like food service delivery. So he's ordering some Chipotle. I've done this before. I've ordered pizza to my friend's house in Calgary, and then I've wondered why it's not showing up at my door in Edmonton because I didn't change the address back. You know how that goes. (laughs) So Shaw says, I forgot to change my address in my Chipotle app, so I told the driver to keep it uh, because, you know, the old address is actually back in Iowa. He says, I was was, uh, pretty mad at the beginning, but after reading this, I'm happy this happened. So he gets the text from the delivery driver. This is unbelievable. Driver says, I'm here with your order. And Shaw replies to him and says, take it with you, bro, and enjoy the lunch. I forgot to change my address, and I currently live in Maryland. Uh, Maryland quite far from Iowa. The the Chipotle driver is not going (laughs) to head to Maryland. So the driver says, "Um, okay, thanks. And then there's this follow-up message that says, I wanted to thank you again. This is from the driver. I wanted to thank you again. It's my brother's birthday today, and he is laid to rest not far from where you had me take this delivery and I'm having lunch with him today because of you. You have no idea how much that means to me. I truly appreciate it. It's pretty awesome. Isn't that amazing? And then there's this from Emily who wrote into us. Uh, She says, Ryan, I'm a regular listener of the show. Positive Reflections is one of my weekly routines. I catch it every Monday and I try to set aside a second or two to reflect on positive things in my own life. It's become a regular exercise and one that I truly value, but I'll be honest Says Emily, it feels tougher to come up with those positive reflections lately. I've been disheartened. Uh, Maybe heartbroken is a better word over recent developments, most particularly in Ukraine. But on Friday, I came across this passage by New York-based author and illustrator Mari Andrew. And it spoke to the deepest part of me. And I bet it will do the same for your audience. Here it is. She passes this along by Mari Andrew. I am washing my face before bed while a country is on fire. It feels dumb to wash my face and dumb not to. It has never been this way and it has always been this way. Someone has always clinked a cocktail glass in one hemisphere as someone loses a home in another, while someone falls in love in the same apartment building where someone grieves. The fact that suffering, mundanity, and beauty coincide is unbearable and remarkable. That from Mari Andrew, shared by Emily to real talkers you can send us your positive reflections whether they're random acts of kindness profound moments realization someone that filled your bucket to talk at ryanjesperson.com and you can learn more about what kubi does in the renewable energy front at kubienergy.ca coming up on the show tomorrow as mentioned it is international women's day and we've got a couple unbelievable conversations in store including women and war and a real talk roundtable on what it means to celebrate womanhood with a leading expert on the emerging demographic of childless women, Melanie Notkin, cancer survivor, Christina Belding, who's, quote, living flat, and transgender woman and advocate, Marnie Panis. Marnie will make her real talk debut. A personal friend of mine, a certified inclusion professional. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, make it a great Monday, friends. Please like, subscribe, share our content with anyone you think might enjoy it. And we'll talk to you soon.
Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer John Hicks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Lawrence Sterlego, general manager Katie Cook-Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.